The National Archives podcast series, A Game for Christmas, Football on the Western Front, December 1914, presented by Dr. Ian Adam. This talk recorded live on the 11th of December 2014 at the National Archives queue. In the afternoon of the 24th of December 1914, the men of the 11th Company, 134th Royal Saxon Infantry Regiment, attended a Christmas Eve service in a ruined sugar refinery near their billets at Labasseville before they went down to take over trenches in front of Plugstreet Wood Wood, in that that evening. They assembled outside the sugar refinery after the service and Lieutenant Kurt Zemich read to them an order he had just received saying they had to be extra vigilant over the Christmas and New Year period because they were expecting attacks from the British during the holiday season. However... He asked his troops not to fire that evening when they got into the trenches or the following day, Christmas Day, unless they were attacked. They then made their way down to the trenches, encumbered by parcels and carrying Christmas trees with them. When they got into the lines, they put their trees up on their parapets and lit the candles in the darkness. And as they did so they noticed that these flickering lights were appearing all along the German trenches as far as the eye could see. The German trenches are obviously in red and the British trenches are a blue dashed line going up there. The sudden appearance of all these flickering lights caused some consternation amongst the Allied troops who thought that some new dastardly deed was upon them. Zimich wanted a peaceful holiday period and he started whistling to attract the attention of the British to converse with them. His company rapidly joined in and very soon they heard discordant responses coming across no man's land. Zemich, assisted by Private Mokel, who spoke excellent English, having lived in England, uh, in Scotland for many years before the war began, helped him and they tried and continued their efforts to communicate and shouting suggestions to meet and exchange German cigars and English cigarettes. Zemich recorded these efforts as being quite fun, and Mokul and Private Huss volunteered to venture into no man's land if the British agreed. A couple of hours after the 134th arrived in their trenches, the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, who were opposite them, were replaced by the 1st Battalion of the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. Before they left their billets at Pont de Nieppe, the Warwicks had received a message from General Headquarters that it's possible that the enemy may be contemplating an attack during Xmas or New Year and special vigilance will be maintained during these periods. It's quite interesting that both of the messages sent out by the GHQs of both sides use the word vigilance. Relieving the Dubliners was always a little bit of a tense time for the Warwicks because the Irishmen had got into the habit of releasing a few rounds of rapid fire in celebration of leaving the trenches. And therefore, the battalion coming down through Plugstreet Wood into the British trenches through here always suffered a few casualties because there were no communication trenches to go down at this stage. They were simply using the corrugated wooden paths down through the woods. However, Private Tapp, an officer servant of A Company, and the C Company commander, Robert Hamilton, Captain Robert Hamilton, both recorded their relief at the lack of shooting 
as they approached the trenches that night through Plugsteer Wood. The term officer-servant, of course, was replaced by the term Batman uh, between the two wars. As they settled into their positions and the Dubliners left, the Warwicks heard the Germans singing, and Tapp's officer, Lieutenant Tillier, ordered his company to sing in turn, which they did with gusto. The Warwickshire machine gun officer, one Bruce Bairnsfeather, noting the peaceful atmosphere, accepted an invitation to dinner in a dugout towards the north of their lines, somewhere up near Anton's farm, somewhere up there, because he uh, later recorded it was far more pleasant to have a bottle of red wine and a few um, goodies sent from home than the normal bully beef. On returning to his dugout, he found that the men of C Company were in good spirits, singing and joking, and one of the men told Bairnsfeather to listen as they could hear the Germans caroling, whistling and shouting in English. Soon banter developed between the opposite trench lines and Bairnsfeather, with Sergeant Ray, his machine gun section sergeant, approached the local commander, Captain Williams Freeman, to get permission to go out into no man's land and meet the Germans. A few more minutes of shouted diplomacy led to an agreement that a man from each side should meet halfway between the trenches, which Zemich estimated at being about 100 metres apart in front of him. Mokel and Huss left the trenches and set off along a willow ditch towards the British. And on this blown up, we can just about see the ditch that goes between the two lines. There, there were some willow uh, tree remains in that ditch as well. As the British, as they left towards the British, Moke Zimich noticed that uh, two shadowy silhouettes of British soldiers could be seen, and he shouted and challenged the British, insisting that only one of them progress. Ray stuffed his cap with cigarettes and tobacco to exchange and continued alone. When he got halfway and met the two Germans, he held out both arms to indicate he was not armed, holding his cap stuffed with the cigarettes and tobacco in one hand. They shook hands, they exchanged cigars, cigarettes, tobacco, lit each other's and then had a brief muted conversation which could be heard from the British trenches where C Company were. Ray, Mokel and Huss shook hands again as they separated, promising not to fire tonight or tomorrow. Now, according to Zemich, Ray shouted to the German trenches as he started his way back, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Zemich yelled back to the British trench lines, Thank you very much, I wish you the same. The British soldiers roared in salute as the negotiators returned to their lines. Ray with a fine haul of cigars and a ceasefire agreement for Christmas Day. A few hundred metres to the southeast, Captain Hamilton and C Company, they're alongside this sunken road uh, just here, the trench line just above it, their dugouts in the embankment here. So we're talking about Bairnsfeather up here and um, Hamilton down here and all of this section being the Warwickshire's various companies. So as the Warwickshire's A Company settled down into the trenches, the Germans started to shout across, are you the Warwicks? Hamilton's men responded, come and see. To which the Germans responded, you come halfway, we'll come halfway, and we'll give you some cigars. After considerable more banter, Hamilton's former servant, Private Double Ginger Gregory, volunteered to go out. Hamilton agreed, but told Gregory that this was not an order, 
This was on his own volition. Gregory disappeared into the darkness and later returned with cigars as agreed. A provisional ceasefire agreement until Boxing Day had also been arranged and a message from the Germans that they wanted to meet an officer. After more shouted diplomacy, it was agreed that Hamilton would meet a German officer in no man's land at dawn, unarmed. After the fraternisation, both sides continued shouting and singing carols, folk songs, and in the still night air, the regimental band of the 134th Royal Saxon Regiment could be clearly heard behind the lines. In fact, some British troops thought the Germans had brought the band up into the trenches. They hadn't. They were behind the lines. Zimich reported, like most of my men, I stayed awake the whole night. And it was a beautiful, if cold, night. Each British battalion kept an official war diary, Form C-2118, which provided a daily account of the activities of the unit. These are written up by a specified junior officer before being signed off by the battalion commander. The battalion diarist of the 1st Royal Warwickshire Regiment notes for the 24th of December, quiet day, relieved the Royal Dublin Fusiliers in the trenches in the evening. Nothing about meeting the Germans, shouting to the Germans, singing carols with the Germans, or anything else. In the dark of Christmas Eve, the men of the 134th Royal Saxons and the Warwickshires had, maga- had managed to arrange a temporary, temporary ceasefire at two separate places, indicated by the Christmas trees. Unknown to each other, because you see it's a dogleg, and obviously the British troops here couldn't see what's going on over there, even though they're in the same regiment. It's very difficult to communicate in the front trench along, because the weather, as we'll see, was not particularly good either. This type of meeting was occurring in several places along the British-German lines in Belgium and in France. After the vicious fighting of the previous three months, in which the British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, had suffered 90,000 men killed, missing or wounded, and both the Germans and French had suffered a million casualties each, including both approximately 300,000 fatalities, What had led to this state of affairs on Christmas Eve? At the beginning of the war, in early August 1914, the Germans were confident of victory in the West in 35 days before Christmas, utilising the traditional Prussian tactics of a war of movement following the Schlieffen Plan. This would allow them to concentrate on the war in the West and then finish it and then go to the East and beat the Russians before they had mobilised. However, the Russians mobilised far more efficiently than expected, the French and the Belgians fought with far more resilience than anticipated, and the British, somewhat unexpectedly for the German high command, actually committed themselves to the fight. By mid-November, Erich von Falkenhayn, the German chief of staff, realised that the plan had failed. In all likelihood, the Germans were going to lose the war. He advised the Kaiser, November 1914, to sue for peace from the favourable position of occupying valuable tranches of France and Belgium. This was rejected, and von Falkenhayn was forced into the protracted operations of siege warfare. And right here, we are supposed to be seeing the the lines, but for some reason it hasn't come up. So this is supposed to be a map of Europe from the Swiss border, 
up to uh, the English Channel. You have to imagine that with nice coloured lines indicating where the British, the Belgians, the French and the Germans are. It's not there. Anyway, we can see what von Falkenheim actually said when he realised he was now being committed into protracted operations of siege warfare. He ordered the construction of defensive lines in depth from the Channel to the Swiss border, about 720 kilometres. The Allies built parallel trench lines, although not to the same quality, as they intended to carry out an offensive strategy to recapture the ten German-occupied French departments and, of course, from a British perspective, the, British Channel, the, the Belgium Channel ports. Between these two lines of trenches, no man's land averaged between 90 and 360 metres in width, although in some places it was down to less than five metres, in other places it was over 900 metres. The stress of continuously being under fire quickly forced the adversaries to set up troop rotation systems. The British, responsible for operations in a section of about 40 kilometres from just south of Ypres to Givenchy in the autumn of winter 1914-15, initially allowed the British, uh, the brigade commanders, to develop their own systems. And in this area of the 4th Brigade, the Royal Warwickshire and the Dublin Fusiliers were simply just rotating every four or five days, just replacing each other. The Plaugsteeg section was comparatively hot at this time when the Warwicks entered the, for the first time in November. The battalion diarist noticed incessant sniping all day long um, on the 23rd and 24th of November. Two killed, two wounded on the 23rd, three wounded on the 24th, eight casualties all sniped on the 25th. The beginning of trench warfare, although it was very, very hostile, was also closely followed by the arrival of winter weather. Bruce Bairnsfather who joined the Warwicks following the arrival of this winter weather, he joined in November, wrote that it was a long and weary night, that first night of mine in the trenches. Everything was strange and wet and horrid. Many of the dugouts had fallen in and floated off downstream. Captain Hamilton revealed the conditions were beginning to develop professional empathy between the British soldiers and their opponents, noting that poor British Tommy, but one and all declared that if the Germans could stand it, surely they could. The closeness of the enemies enabled them to see beyond the propaganda to the humanity of the opposition. They recognised experience and problems in common. They had mutual enemies in the cold, the mud, the lice, the rats, the flooded trenches, senior officers and politicians. They were all exhausted, frozen, many disillusioned, many questioning their immediate purpose. There didn't seem to be much point in killing one or two of the enemy and risking reprisals. They recognised they had more in common with the soldiers in the opposite trenches than they did with the civilians at home. Paradoxically, in such a violent and bitter war, ordinary soldiers had swiftly adopted informal live-and-let-live arrangements whenever the lines stabilised, with the men carrying out shouted conversations and choral singing with their enemies. Private Tapp noted that in one tour of the trenches, the Germans and the British were putting up targets for each other to aim at and were signalling hits and misses. Where the trenches were particularly close, newspapers and other goods were thrown across as well, and these tacit truces were making life less exhausting and dangerous for both sides, although actual fraternisation was rare. The soldiers on both sides recognised that the weather was making the movement of troops and heavy equipment difficult, which, which, combined with the significant losses of troops, pack animals and materiel during the first three months of the war, made meaningful offensives unlikely before the spring. The British Army requisitioned over 300,000 horses and mules in the first 12 days of the war. But they required training, and the training centres needed to be established. 
Out of the 25,000 horses and mules, pack animals the British Army started with at the outbreak of war in August 1914, 13,500 of these animals, more than half, had been killed before Christmas. Rumours of fraternisation and live-and-let-live attitudes reached the press and began being reported in the newspapers. If we look at this, we can see the date is December 26, 1914, in the Illustrated London News. These illustrations were generally drawn from uh, descriptions sent by serving soldiers or by sketches sent by serving soldiers. So for this to be published in Christmas, the sketch, the description, must have reached the Illustrated London News several weeks before in order for an artist to come up with the drawing, for the woodblocks to be carved and for it to be published. So this bit of fraternisation, trucing that's being described here, was probably well before Christmas. International figures such as Pope Benedict XV and Senator William Kenyon attempted to broker a truce for the proper celebration of Christmas. The high command on both sides recognised the probability of increased fraternisation and took measures to enforce an aggressive attitude and encourage vigilance. The French believed the Germans were withdrawing troops to the Eastern Front and decided upon offensive operations to break through the entrenched trenches. The British supported these moves and a, a number of small but costly attacks were ordered between the 14th and the 19th of December. These included a tactical attack on the 19th to the immediate uh, right to straighten the lines of the Warwicks and they were ordered to assist through the enfilade fire against the enemy in front of the attacking group. These attacks accomplished little and heavy casualties occurred leaving numerous dead contributing to the macabre scenes of no man's land. The surviving soldiers wished to bury their dead comrades out of respect for the dead to escape the sight and the smell and to reduce the health hazards. After the battle, the first Royal Warwickshires were relieved by the Royal Dublin Fusiliers on the evening of the 20th. Most of the Warwickshire casualties had been caused by British artillery rounds falling wide and short of their targets. The Warwickshires, as we know, returned to the trenches on the 24th and were establishing communication uh, to the enemy. So let's return to Christmas. At dawn on Christmas Day, the Warwickshires, um, Ben's Feather remarked that it was a perfect day, cloudless blue sky, the ground hard and white, fading off towards the woods in low-lying mist. It was such a day as is invariably depicted by artists on Christmas cards, the ideal Christmas day of fiction. The Warwickshires were becoming aware that unusually they could see German soldiers on the skyline, heads bobbing up and down and showing over their parapet in a most reckless way. The agreed ceasefire was continuing. Zemich wrote that at dawn he shouted good morning to the English opposite and then had negotiations about our dead brothers who had been lying out in no man's land for a long time and couldn't be ordinarily brought back to the lines. Many of these bodies had been there since October. He and some of his men risked bobbing into sight and when no shots were fired at them, they clambered out onto the parapet. Private Harry Morgan recorded that at dawn, a German soldier with absolutely perfect English began an interchange with a Warwickshire soldier and invited him to meet halfway. And to their surprise, they suddenly saw a German stand on top of his parapet in the opening and in full view. He walked towards us and stood in the middle. We admired the courage of the German between the trenches, didn't know whether he was full of Christmas spirit or completely round the twist. One of them quickly went out and met him and shook hands, and immediately a crowd of Germans joined them, and then Morgan's company went out as well. Seamich watched. Some Brits are out of their trenches, and some of our men approach them. I go out too and greet the Brits, and soon some Brit officers join us, and I have delightful conversations with the English officers in a mixture of English, French, and German. 
Bernsferther was one of these officers and exchanged some uniform buttons with a German officer. He summed up that we both said things to each other which neither understood, and slowly the meeting dispersed as both sides knew those in authority would not be amused. They parted with the distinct and friendly understanding that Christmas Day would be left to finish in tranquillity. Hamilton believed that this sudden gathering of foes in no man's land was due to him. He had met at dawn, he had agreed to meet at dawn, if you remember, just round the corner from Bernsferther. As arranged, he had met a German officer at dawn when we said what we could in double Dutch and agreed a 48-hour armistice. Their return to the trenches became the signal for the soldiers to come out and exchange gifts and greetings. Some men went back to their trenches and fetched spades to give a decent burial to the dead, a task previously too dangerous, but now both sides were here working together. Once the dead had been buried, Zemich went over to fraternise a few more times and his NCO Holland took three photographs of us posing with the British officers. Lieutenant Guy Cave and Bairnsfather both recollect having their photographs taken with the Saxons. Cave thought it was significant that one German officer remarked, you're Anglo-Saxons, we are Saxons, then why we jute? And he did spell shoot with a J in his diary for some reason, um, Lieutenant Cave. Cave continued that they removed the identification discs of the dead so there'll be definite news at home for some relatives. Private Tapp's narrative adds the interesting detail of attempts to set up a football match. We are trying to arrange a football match with them, the Saxons, for tomorrow, Boxing Day. This attempt to set up a formal football match was not unique. Various sources reference attempts to play such a match on either Boxing Day or New Year's Day at several points through several battalions along the line. These plans all seem to have been thwarted in all cases by external circumstances, by shelling, shooting from non-fraternising shoots into the quiet areas, or by troops being rotated out of the line and being replaced by more aggressive units. Zemich also notes attempts to set up a football match on Boxing Day. Towards evening... The officers asked us whether a football match could be arranged the following day between the two positions. We cannot be sure as a new captain company, the first, arrives tomorrow. They were rotating out of the lines. They were only rotating in and out of the lines every two days compared to the British. So he couldn't guarantee a football match tomorrow because they weren't going to be there. There was going to be somebody differently there. However, interestingly, he, he had already commented a couple of English brought a ball out of their trench and a vigorous football match began. This was all marvellous and strange. English officers thought so too. The football on Christmas Day, as described by Zemich, is recalled also by Bairnsfather. He remembered that at about noon a football match was suggested. Somebody uh, had evidently received a deflated football as a Christmas present. Despite the frozen and pitted surface and surviving turnips, one of ours brought up a football, blew it up uh, and kicked it about. An independent witness also reported a football match in the area. Sergeant Francis Gale... A, an artillery spotter at Chateau de la Hutte on the hill to the northwest fringes of Plugsteer Wood wrote a telephone message received that our boys and Jerry's were fraternising and even playing football in, at the time. This could be plainly seen from our OP, a big chateau. Standing at the ruins of the chateau today, it is possible to see that the position, only see the positions of the British trenches to the north of Plugsteer Wood. You cannot see the trenches to the east of the woods where 11th Brigade are installed. So he's looking at the area responsible of the 10th Brigade of the 4th Division of the British Army at Christmas. 
The chateau was visible from Bairns Feather's position. He described, at the top of a wooded rise in the grounds stood what, what once must have been a fine chateau. The Warwicks looked on that dear old mangled wreck with a friendly eye. That tapering, twisted, perforated spire was an everlasting bait to the Bosch. In other words, the Warwicks believed as long as that fine chateau, which we saw just a few minutes ago, was standing, the Germans would shell that rather than them. So they quite liked having that there. However, if the woods had suffered severe damage by Christmas 1914, would it have been possible for Gale to observe the trench lines to the east, that far side of those woods? So here he is at Chateau de la Hutte, right up there, and his field of view, if he couldn't see through these uh, trees, was restricted to that area there with the Warwickshires, the Seaforth Highlanders. Uh, so the football that he's describing and the, the fraternisation must be within that area there. If we look at photographs in Plug Street Woods at Christmas, such as this one, we soon realised that at this stage of the war, the woods were still basically standing. And even though it is uh, winter and the leaves have come off most of the trees, for Sergeant Gale, up above, staring through these trees, a minimum of 700 metres to the trench on the far side, he couldn't have seen the trenches and no man's land to the east. Therefore, he had to be looking at the place where the Warwickshires abutted the Seaforths. The other, the other battalions of the 10th Brigade were back in reserve at this stage. So the kilted soldiers that Gale saw were those of the Seaforth Highlanders who abutted the Warwickshires at Anton Farm. As Zemich does not describe the British footballers as being kilted, a garment which fascinated the Germans, the game he described, and the one seen by Gale, must have involved the Warwickshires. It appears the Warwickshires broke off the fraternisation first, as they thought they were outnumbered in no man's land. Tap noted the gathering of Germans and us, it was one mass, about 150 of them and half as many of us, all in a ring, <coughs> laughing and talking. Just to the southeast, Black became worried because the Germans outnumbered us four or five to one, so I told the captain I thought we'd better get back to our trenches, which we did after a great deal of bowing. That evening, the officers of the Warwickshires enjoyed a concert in D Company Trench, which Hamilton thought was the most enjoyable evening, but I doubled the sentries after midnight. Zumich concluded, thus Christmas, the celebration of love, managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. This Christmas will be unforgettable to me. The battalion diarist wrote, Christmas Day, a local truce, British and Germans intermingled between the trenches, dead in front of the trenches, buried, not a shot fired all day, no casualties. The soldiers awoke on Boxing Day to a thin covering of snow and again fraternised until about 08.40 hours, Lieutenant Tillier told all the troops, British and Germans, to get under cover. HQ had informed the Warwickshires that the artillery was going to fire on the Germans in front of them at 0900 hours. The Germans asked to come into the British trenches. Hamilton recalled the British guns firing on the German second line of trenches. The German light artillery responded with some shelling of the Warwickshire lines. After the barrages, the truce resumed. Tap writing, the troops on both sides were all mixed up again. It's too ridiculous for words. Hamilton recalled more Christmas presents arriving and again met the Germans in the middle of no man's land. Lieutenant Drummond, a 32nd Brigade Royal Field Artillery Observer, had heard about the truces on Christmas Day and decided to head to the lines and see it and experience it for himself. He walked around in the open in Hamilton's area, noting both the British and Germans digging and repairing trenches and repairing their barbed wire entanglements. 
before he entered no man's land to converse with some of the Germans and exchange souvenirs. Having a camera with him, he lined up some of the troops he could find and recorded the event. There's no, intent, no mention of the Ger- by the Germans, the 134th, or the British, the Warwickshires, or any of the artillery observers of any football match being played on Boxing Day. The battalion diarist wrote, Truce ended owing to us opening fire. German light gun reply on D Company trenches, two wounded, no sniping all day on either side. In the evening, German star shells show large party of B Company putting up wire, no shots fired. So in other words, it's continuing. Bairns Feather noted that a couple of days after Christmas were of a very peaceful nature, but not quite so enthusiastically friendly as the day itself. Both Hamilton and Tapp record walking about in the open on the 27th of December, but they did not intermingle very much with the Germans, and both sides constructed new trenches and again extended their barbed wire. The diarist reports on the 27th, no sniping, little shell fire from light guns over D Company. Poor D Company, they didn't get the shelling all the time. One wounded. And on the 28th of December, wet day. Great improvements have been taking place in the wire in front of our trenches, relieved by Royal Dublin Fusiliers and in billets in point 63. It's important to note that although the war diaries are being kept by a junior officer, at this stage of the war they are still mainly regular officers who joined before the war and were therefore thinking about a career in the army. It can be surmised that, in many cases, these officers would have been aware of the headquarters' attitude to fraternisation. And therefore, it's quite probable that any fraternisation that was occurring was probably downplayed or totally ignored in the war diaries. No regimental war diaries report football of any sort being played, but that's the war diaries of the regiments that are actually, the battalions that are actually in the front line over Christmas. But judicious editing by battalion commanders may have occurred, for example, the War Diary of the First of the Buffs, East Kent, is missing pages December 21st to December 29th. The Plaugsteeter area continued to be peaceful with the Dubliners playing football on the 29th of December when they're in the trenches. The 134 Saxons have gone, being relieved by the 55th Westphalians. And their officers note while watching football being played by the Dubliners, D. Dublin Fusiliers sind gut. The Dubliners are good footballers. The Warwicks return to the trenches on New Year's Day. And although the artillery is on both sides is firing, we can continue to look across peacefully at each other. However, the unofficial truce around Plaugsteert came to a sudden end two or three weeks after Christmas when a German walking along his trenches parapet was shot down by an unknown British soldier. Private Harry Morgan felt unhappy that it was one of us that had broken the unwritten trust. The unfortunate man had no sooner hit the ground when they hit us with everything they had, a rapid fire to exceed all previous rapid firings. The war was on again with a vengeance. For the Warwickshire's Christmas truce was over. Remembering the truce, in 1999, nine experiential military historians of the Association for Military Remembrance 1899-1960, colloquially known as the Khaki Chums, spent Christmas at Plaugsteert where the Warwickshire's were in the trenches, raising money for various military charities. They used the same kit as the soldiers of 1914, with no modern luxuries. They arrived on the 23rd of December and departed on the evening of the 27th, similar to the period that the Warwickshires were there in 1914. At the end of this day, they refilled their trench and raised a large wooden cross as a mark of respect for those who fought and died in the area, expecting it to quickly disappear as firewood. However, the locals have adopted this cross. At the time, the only memorial to the Christmas truce and they've set it in a concrete base and regularly treat it with preservative. The Khaki Chums Cross, since replaced by the Khaki Chums with one of harder wood, 
has become a recognised stop on many tour itineraries and has had an information board erected alongside it, as you can see. And interestingly, it's become a focus of football fans' remembrance and is habitually surrounded by footballs, team scarves and even sometimes replica jerseys. On our last visit to it, you can actually see a football club supporter's coffee mug sitting up there as well. These items all seem to be removed, at least annually, as images of the cross around Remembrance Day usually only show wreaths and small wooden British Legion crosses. The idea of football being played by the soldiers on both sides of the First World War has caught the imagination of generations. A century on, Prince William claimed it remains wholly relevant today as a message of hope over adversity. Even in the bleakest of times, football is a powerful way to engage and educate young people about such an important moment in our history. In Britain, the English Premier League, the Football League, the Football Association, in collaboration with the British Council, joined forces in a wide initiative called Football Remembers. This project marks the 100th anniversary of the Christmas truce, when soldiers, quote, from both sides were thought to have stopped fighting and played football on the Western Front. Cross-disciplinary education packs, including eyewitness accounts, photographs and reproductions of soldiers' letters from the British, French, German, Belgium and Indian perspectives, have been sent to over 30,000 schools in Britain. The British Council CEO, Samata Davidson, said the truce match was an illustration of how people-to-people connections can triumph at a time of global crisis. The Premier League has sponsored an under-12 football tournament at Yeep since 2011 and plans to build a 3G community pitch there to create a sporting and cultural experience that lasts beyond the centenary. Britain's first world, first world War and Sports Minister, Helen Grant, has stated when both sides laid down their arms at Christmas and played football, they showed how sport can overcome even the biggest divide. However, there's no objective evidence that anything resembling a proper football match actually occurred at any of the truce sites along the British line. We know that football was commonly played in the British Army by 1914, especially by the working-class soldiers, uh, encouraged by junior officers to help develop fitness and esprit de corps. The troops of the BAF took football with them to the front, improvising and playing wherever possible, even within the sound of the guns. This is obviously a cavalry measurement. Well, look at all the, the horses that are sheltered out of sight of the German observation balloons and, and aeroplanes. In July 1915, General Haig, the first army commander, after an increasing number of men being found asleep on sentry duty, wrote in his diary that men should rest during the day when they know they'll be on sentry duty at night. Instead of resting, they're running around and playing football. Football was a consuming passion, and sports papers were in great demand at the front as the men tried to keep up to date with their team's performances. Professional football in England did not stop until the 24th of April 1915 in the Khaki Cup final. Football was becoming increasingly popular in Germany, especially amongst the young. Some regimental records show that the German troops were playing football and football tournaments were being held in their spare time, just like the British. There were even instances of German, Germans calling across no man's land for the results or for sports papers to be thrown across the trenches so they could find out how their favourite English and Scottish teams were doing. However, some commentators remain insistent that no football of any sort was played in no man's land because the, crowd, the ground was too shell-cratered uh, shell and too muddy. Tommies would not, not have risked injury uh, and no balls were available. There was, there was no room in their packs to carry them into the trenches. But the weather had turned cold just before Christmas. And when we look at photographs of the Christmas truce, 
the mud has hardened, and the men are standing on a hard surface. Similar photographs and reports indicate the ground in most places had not been badly cratered at this early stage of the war, and informal kickabouts were certainly viable in some areas. As the war progressed, an increasing numbers of artillery guns of heavier calibre bombarded the same areas continually. No man's land became progressively more cratered and unplayable, leading to our collective memory of the front. You certainly wouldn't kick around there. The frozen and uneven ground of Christmas May 1914 may have made twists and sprains more likely than playing on a normal football ground. But, as evidenced by the Warwickshires, officers were involved in the truces, and as in Hamilton's case, even instrumental to them beginning. Football injuries would have been covered up by the junior officers as normal duty injuries, as hundreds of soldiers were being hospitalised weekly through illness and injury caused by the conditions in the front line. Others point out the amount of kit carried to the front would have prevented footballs reaching the firing line, that units with a football would have left them with their valises in battalion transport as they went to the lines. However, men did carry them to the trenches, we know. Fred Davidson, the first Cameronian's medical officer, observed the French were always fascinated by the British obsession with football, asking why so many soldiers carry balls strapped to their packs on the way to the lines. Others would have put a deflated ball into their packs, crammed out of sight of unsympathetic officers, as the London Irish did before they kicked off at Loose, the Battle of Loose in 1915. Balls of the period did not need special inflation needles and pumps. Those of you old enough to remember the balls that we kicked around as kids, you could just undo the laces, take it out (laughs) and blow it up by mouth. Wouldn't reach match pressure necessarily, but you'd certainly have a kick around with it. Newspapers in Britain and Germany had carried adverts for weeks suggesting items that soldiers might enjoy as Christmas presents, and logistic systems of the enemies strained to deliver all of the goods. Over a quarter of a million packages were delivered to the BEF in the six days before the 12th of December, and a further 200,000 the following week. It's highly probable that a number of soldiers in each battalion would have received a ball for Christmas, As we've already heard, the Warwickshires were actually receiving presents into the trenches on Christmas Day. And some would have carried them into the lines, perhaps looking forward to a game in reserve positions before being reunited reunited with their valises in billets. This chap here has smuggled an accordion into the trenches. So he found room to carry that in. And people who say the same bizarre has been a little bit uh, light, well, we know... The soldiers received these items and they did exchange them with the Germans for cigars, German boiled sweets, etc. There are other stories of playing football with other items. We can see here a number of things. The London Rifles report a cap comforter stuffed with straw did for a ball. The Second Lancashire's, the sandbag uses the football, etc. And the, all the way down, made up balls, a little rubber ball. Uh, that made, and of course, a football match started there. So lots of other substitutes were used, and particularly, I think, looking at things, perhaps cans. Empty cans were everywhere in no man's land. This is just in front of the British lines when the troops finished their, their meals. They simply threw the cans out over the front. That obviously helped the rat problem, or encouraged the rat problem anyway. But they did that because... If the Germans were sneaking up at night, there was a likelihood they might kick the can. 
and help alert the defenders. Later on in the war, these cans were often suspended, obviously, from the wire. But Zimich and Bairnsfair are insistent that real footballs were used. Um, but they're not the only ones. We can see here, and as I pointed out earlier, the buffs whose regiment war diary is missing certain dates. The Germans came out of their protective holes. They supplied the football and invited our boys out for a game. Our boys joined them, and together they quickly had great fun till they returned to their posts. If something like that got written up in the war diary and then the battalion commander saw it, you can see why the battalion commander may have razor-bladed or cut out the uh, incriminating pages which may have ended his ar army career uh, right there. It's puzzling why Tapp and Morgan did not write about football being played if it occurred, especially as Tapp was an enthusiastic Birmingham City fan. Maybe that's why he didn't write about football. Perhaps it's such a normal activity in downtime that it was not worth writing about, whereas a fo formal football match proposed by officers was significant. Many of the participants in the Warwickshire's truce did not survive the war. The accounts of kickabouts may have disappeared with them. A few weeks after the um, Christmas of 1914 truce that they participated in, the Second Battle of Ypres occurred in which the British army lost a further 59,000 men and the Warwickshire's were there. Morgan wrote about advancing past his platoon officer, or what remains of Lieutenant Danson, now just a torso, with the men near him unidentifiably scattered over a considerable distance. The battalion lost eight officers killed, nine wounded or missing, and over 500 other ranks killed, missing or wounded in the early hours of the 24th of April. Bairns, Feather and Morgan ended up on stretchers alongside each other at the base hospital at Rouen, discussing the truce. Private Tapp's diary sadly finishes mid-sentence on the 25th of April 1915 when he was mortally wounded by a shell. One wonders if the same shell that wounded his officer, Lieutenant Tillier, is the one that killed him. He, as an officer's servant, he would have probably been very close running messages, etc., for his officer. So perhaps the same shell. We don't know, but probably. In addition, many records, of course, were lost during the Second World War as aerial warfare developed to include large swathes of territory well behind the front line. However, the camera never lies, and we have a photographic record of the famous football match, don't we? We see it every Christmas. Although even a cursory investigation shows this to be an officers versus men game, Christmas Day 1915, British soldiers against British soldiers in Salonika. And yet Christmas cards and everything else show the Christmas truce football match. Normally, of course, fading out the camp behind them, as that wouldn't have been too close to the front line. Although important international actors, such as the Pope, US Senator Kenyon, had failed to procure a peace for for Christmas, and as governments attempted to construct a new model of industrial civilization to order the world on a grand scale, some soldiers on the ground secured a peaceful Christmas. Their envoys, apparently initially none above the rank of captain, representing themselves and their company rather than their army or even their battalion, met and agreed terms with the single purpose of mobilizing mass local opinion, advocating a local local peaceful Christmas, subverting or transcending the wishes of their respective headquarters. The citizen diplomats established simple agreements over time, signals and troop numbers, whilst cocking a snoop at their own generals. Certainly news of these rapprochements 
worried the headquarters on both sides as they felt they were losing certainty and control over their war. But their actions ensured the outcomes were short-term and not to be repeated. However, there's no evidence of any significant punishments being meted out to the participants. There was no court-martials of British soldiers or German units sent to the Eastern Front, although possibly individual careers may have suffered. At the time, none of the participants seemed to have thought beyond the Christmas holiday. They certainly did not envisage reaching a lasting peace, although some later reflected on the possibility of refusing to return to the fight. In 2000, a British Foreign Officer flyer claimed that building links with overseas publics will matter as much as talking to governments in the age of global communications. And we won't reach millions through diplomatic channels. Therefore, the Foreign Office must unleash the energy of 60 million budding ambassadors in British schools, businesses, local authorities, political parties and communities. A hundred years on, the Christmas truces and and the mythical football match appear to have provided a catalyst for the production of some young diplomats. In 2014, the Football Remembers Project plans to send two pupil ambassadors plus a teacher from every secondary school to Flanders and Belgium. To conclude... For many years after the war, it was commonly believed the truces did not occur. But due to research on letters, diaries and photographs, we know that about two-thirds of the British line were involved in some level of fraternisation with the Germans. No doubt Kurt Zimich, Robert Hamilton, Bruce Bairnsfather, Sergeant Ray, Privates Double Ginger, Gregory, Mockle, Tapp, Morgan and Huss would be amazed to discover the British Council research has shown that the Christmas truce is one of the most recognised moments of the First World War and more than two-thirds of British adults are aware of the football match that took place. This in spite of the fact it's highly unlikely that any well-organised game that the British Council's respondents would recognise as a proper football match took place. Although I'm certain that no padre ever judged Captain Blackadder to be interfering with play in an offside position. But it is highly probable that given the extent of the truces, the thousands of soldiers milling around in no man's land, the ubiquitousness of football in the BEF, and that some soldiers, both German and British, had fun playing football on their unexpected holiday using any equipment to hand. Somebody would have kicked a can and somebody would have kicked it back. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.